Hello and welcome. It's episode 9, and it's an absolute belter of an episode, if I say so myself. My guest today has written as a journalist for publications such as The Guardian, The Telegraph, Vice News, and many, many more. And she's also the author of her own memoir. It's called No Way Home, A Memoir of Life on the Run. And it's the true story of her childhood growing up on the run with a father who was the largest importer of weed into America. She's also currently working on a novel, a screenplay, a TV pilot, a potential movie from her memoir. And she's just an all-around legend. Her name is Tyler Weatherall. In this episode today, we discuss a number of things. We discuss the process of writing and rewriting and rewriting again a book. Uh, We discuss the process of getting an agent, getting a book deal, all the way to getting a book published and on the shelves, how that all works. Also touch on how to work as a freelance journalist, how to deal with writer's block, and a lot more. Uh, I think, honestly, this is a seriously, seriously high recommendation for anyone who is in any way interested in in writing as a career be that as a journalist be that as the author of fiction be that as the author of non-fiction i think there's just some really seriously valuable tips in here for for anyone with any real interest in writing and in turning writing into a career into a, a source of income Gotta give a quick shout out to our sponsors, artbyengus.com. You're running out of time to buy people art for Christmas and, you know, why would you not? It's just a beautiful gift I would recommend, you know. Just get on there and buy some art. Other than that, yeah, if there's anything you like, anything you don't like in today's show, please feel free to get in touch. Angus at artbyengus.com, at Angus Boyle on Instagram, Angus, A-E-N-G-U-S, just for anyone who can't spell. And... Yeah, without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Creative Marketing Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode eight of the Creative Marketing Podcast. Today I am joined by a journalist who's written for publications like The Guardian, The Times, Vice, The Telegraph, and and a much longer list than that as well. And also the author of a book, No Way Home, A Memoir of a Life on the Run. Today I'm joined by no other than Tyler Weatherall. Thank you for joining me, Tyler. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Excited, yeah, digitally at least here. The the, the (laughs) joys of the corona world yeah so i guess i gave a very brief intro but i like to ask people if they give their own intro you know who you are what you're what you do that sort of thing um i loved your intro your intro is great i am i guess just a, a writer of all trades working on another novel i'm working on a screenplay a pilot for a tv show um i will write all of the things and any of the things available yeah so I guess that's sort of it. That's all I've oh, done. Amazing. That's all that's I've ever exciting done. Stuff. That's exciting <laughs> stuff. It sounds like you've done a lot of it, though. So that's a, a lot to dig into, which is exciting. I guess, because I think it's going to probably form the basis of at least a lot of our conversation. Can you, yeah. we'll, we'll dive straight into the elephant in the room. If you can tell us without, you know, giving too much away a little bit about the backstory of what I guess both is your life and your first book. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so the kind of elevator pitch, I guess, is my dad was an international pop trafficker and I spent my childhood on the run from the FBI so that's kind of in a nutshell you grow up like that you feel like you should probably and you, you want to be a writer it's a great story you've been gifted <laughs> with um, I think I, I hope the book actually is about more than that there, there's a surprisingly there's a surprising lack of drugs in the book it's not really about um, the pot trade or about his kind of escapades it's more of a father-daughter story it's about growing up and learning to accept your parents for who they are with their flaws and loving them all the same. It's about forgiveness. So I think hopefully it's sort of a story that everybody will relate to set in this much more uh, unusual backdrop of being on the run and coming to terms with 
moving from country to country and changing your name and being followed by Scotland Yard and the FBI and all of those less ordinary uh, subjects. So I guess that's in a nutshell, right? (laughs) It definitely is. Yeah, I mean, um, I heard you speak on something else and saying it was sort of when you were younger, it seemed it didn't seem abnormal to you. You just thought that was that was how life was for everyone, which is such an interesting thought of how how clueless kids are in ways, I guess, you know. You just, you come to accept whatever your reality is as normal. And I think it's only as you come to get to know other people better and you get to see how their families function and and the choices that their families make that you start to reflect on your own and start to ask questions. Um, But we are incredibly accepting as young people. I mean, you're learning about the world. Um, Everything you know at first comes from your parents and your family. And so I really didn't I knew there was something unusual about our life and I kind of liked showing off about it when parents would ask like, where are you from? You've got a slightly funny accent. I'd be like, I've lived in five countries and 13 houses and I was like eight years old. And I liked (laughs) that people would look at me like, oh, that's a bit strange. But I never, it didn't go the next step of questioning of, of why was it this way? And because it was secret, you know, when dad was still on the run and at that point we were, we were living with our mother and we were much more, um, we were going to school and our life was a little bit more ordinary and dad was still running and it was always secret what he, that he was a fugitive and what he had done. And then it was secret when he went to prison. And I think if we don't tell people what's happening in our lives, you don't ever have to make sense of it or necessarily, uh, you don't get the opportunity to make sense of it or really confront how extraordinary it is because it remains separate from everyday life in its own little box. And I, I guess the memoir was, was really trying to, to do that work to, to understand what it meant and the impact it had and to make a story from it that I could live with. So then fast forward from that, where I know you did you struggling to speak here. Let me start again. <laughs> you you say now, you know, you it sounds like you're a prolific writer now, you know, working on a screenplay, working on a, another novel, working on a TV show, all these different things. And obviously writing is your sort of day job as well as these other exploits. Has, has that always been the case or was there a time when that sort of started more? Have you always writer, been a writer? I've, I've always been a writer. I think I was I was lucky in that. My first job out of university, I did a master's in journalism and I started working as a journalist while I was finishing my master's. So, and I, and I was straight away working as a writer and, and I think I'm, I'm not sure everyone gets that opportunity, especially now when there are so, there are fewer jobs in journalism. I, I squeezed in just before the recession. I think even a couple of years later, it got much tougher. And I always knew I wanted to write and I had this idea that I wanted to write for a living and that there was something, and I, I still believe there's something very noble about writing for a living. But in some ways, writing for a living also holds you back if you're looking to write something more groundbreaking or not, I guess that's the wrong word, but having to make money from it means you have to create a product that is sellable. And in some ways, mm-hmm. if you want to write books, sometimes having a different day job is actually quite helpful. But because I wanted to write for a living, I worked as a journalist as my day job while also writing books on the side. And actually, journalism is an incredibly challenging job that really requires all of your energy. So I'm not sure necessarily it was the most sensible way forward, but that's what I did. So yeah, I've always written. And very early on, I knew that writing books was my ultimate goal. So always I was channeling funds into taking three months off here and there to work on No Way Home. And so I started freelancing really early in order to be able to take the time to write long form as well. So I've always, yeah, I've had a slightly strange journey as in terms of a, of a career between bouts of journalism, bouts of book writing, yeah. and now pretty much everything I'm doing is long form. 
Oh, really? Cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, my I'm familiar with the journalism world because my mum actually, my mum very similar did a BA in English and and is a journalist. Well, she's actually retired now, but she was for many many years a journalist. She was more TV based, but um, she's also yeah. working on a has been working for years on a novel. So I'm going to be slyly yeah. shout out mum if you're listening to this, uh, asking questions on her behalf that I think will be of value to her as well. Um, oh, wonderful! It takes so long. I don't know why it has to take so long writing books. Like, like oh, it should be quick. I know how this one ends. Like, oh, it still took me, you know, five years. <laughs> so how? So t- touching on that, how? I guess to begin with, how did that come about in the first place? How did it did it start? Just as a seed in your mind that you sort of thought about for a while and played with, or how did it come about? The memoir. Yeah. Um, so I was working on a magazine in London. Um, so I already I was already working full time, and my dad had been out of prison for a couple of years and he wanted to ever the businessman wanted to sell his story to a ghostwriter knowing that he had a great adventure story to tell and Mr. Nice had come out and was a massive sensation he's like I sold way more pot than that guy <laughs> <laughs> and so he felt like that someone would want to buy his story and I felt very strongly this is this is our story and I want to tell it and I was already working as a writer and, and naivety led me to believe that it wouldn't be that difficult. Um, so I actually quit my job, moved out to LA where he was living and moved in with him for the first time in my life, you know, from when I was four years old and my parents separated. And I interviewed him every day. It was a really special and profound time in our lives where he got a tra- the chance to tell me his story. And I recorded it and I spent the afternoons, afternoons transcribing his story. And that was the start of the book. And I started writing it in earnest at that point, but I knew nothing about writing long form. I didn't understand the way that memoirs really you're working stuff something out on the page you're coming to terms with something you're that, that like what I said earlier about making meaning from experience that's the whole work of memoir and I I really hadn't done that work myself yet I was 24 years old I, I didn't really think about the bigger themes and the bigger ways that it impacted us all so I think I had to do a lot of growing up and healing in the process of working on the memoir which is part of the reason it took so long I basically wrote three books. I wrote one, which is my dad's biography, which is what he wanted. And I was like, I don't want to write this. This is just glamorizing this. And it's not telling the story that I experienced. And, you know, women and children are always sidelined in these men's misadventures. And what about that story? So I started rewriting it as a novel. I wrote a novel based on a true story, pretending it wasn't my story because I wasn't ready to say that was my life. And then I finally rewrote it as a memoir. So it was a really long process. And I could have skipped all of that if I just waited a bit and learned a bit more about, about book writing or, I don't know, <laughs> ask somebody's advice. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I'm sure you've, I'm sure the lessons have sunk in a bit deeper, though, from, from that process, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Like, I definitely feel now I'm able to understand the shape of a book in a different way. I, I guess I, I could have done a master's in, in creative writing and that would have maybe taught me some of the things I ended up learning during that time. But now I approach book writing with a lot more trepidation because I understand the undertaking and don't naively believe I can finish a book in a year. So I guess that's, that's yeah, what is the, what are the cliff notes of what you learned or like what were the, what were the big naive misconceptions you had that had, that were shattered through the process, I guess? 
um, oh God, I knew nothing. And every stage is a learning curve. So firstly, there's the, the, just the craft, something as simple as the way a scene building, understanding that the scene is a building block of storytelling and to think about what your active scenes are versus what your passive scenes. So all this craft work, that took a long time. The beast of it, the structure of the thing. So understanding how stories are shaped, um, that's probably what took the longest in the writing because it's not told chronologically. And certainly the thing that I think is now going to be easiest lesson wise because none of that will get easier necessarily because each book is different but how to how to find an agent how publishing works how that entire journey from okay I've got my draft I've got my book to publication that's the bit that I think those lessons I can carry through now for my future books and in some ways that learning curve was was toughest because I could have done it I could have made it a lot easier for myself. Like I didn't realize for nonfiction, you don't have to finish the book. You, you can write a proposal and three sample chapters and you can approach an agent and an agent can approach a publisher with that, which would have made everything a lot quicker. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a key step, all right, yeah. <laughs> the key step. <laughs> um, so things, things like that. And I think also having an understanding of the, of the marketplace, not that that should affect it, a writer when they want to tell a story and they, when they have a project that they're really passionate about, they should write that story. But knowing how, how it might fit into the publishing world or the ways you might, if, if it doesn't fit in, how you can create space for it. Because I don't think if something doesn't fit that there isn't space for it, but sometimes it's more complicated. Like people found my book difficult when I first wrote it as a novel because it was kind of hybrid novel memoir and they didn't, they didn't know what to do with that. Um, I think I could approach those problems with a lot more clarity now, but I understand the marketplace a bit better. Yeah, okay. That Sorry, did that sense. answer your question? Definitely, I think. And there's okay. definitely some stuff that I'm excited to dig into a bit further. So I guess for context, this show is sort of aimed at creative people of various mediums early in their career. So people who are like, I guess, you back in the clueless stage who, and I guess in this episode specifically, people who who maybe are writers and are, are thinking about writing a book or in the process mm. of writing a book maybe. So lots of things I wanted to dig in, want to dig into, but the first one is you touched on, you said five years here, I heard you on a different thing say 10 years. So definitely a long process of writing the book. Yes, so, well, it's 10 years from, um, so t probably five years of writing from like moment of like, I'm gonna quit my job and this is gonna be easy to book okay. being on bookshelf, that was 10 years. There was okay. a lot of um, years of trying to find agents and, and then agents trying to find publishers. Okay. <laughs> that was at least three. Uh, okay, well, excited to dig into that part too then. Um, but I guess in the first bit, you know, you talked about how long a process it is writing a book. Mm. Uh, I guess for someone, at the outset beginning thinking about starting or someone who's maybe in the midst of it and potentially thinking about quitting because they've been working on this book for a couple of years and they're not seeing light at the end of the tunnel any sort of words of wisdom or or things that got you through that process things like that it's so hard and I think it's hard for everybody I don't think that there's an easy if somebody I mean some people maybe they just pour write books maybe just pour out of them but I think it is a very hard and long process and it's going to take as long as it takes and I guess for me I used to just imagine the moment I signed a contract and I think that isn't how I write anymore the first book because I had various interest in it quite early on I just would imagine the moment that that deal was signed and I'd feel like I was legitimized I'd get validation and then I'm a real author and actually there's so many steps along that way I, I, 
I don't know if that's the right goal to have in mind. I think you have to take pleasure in the process. And it's sort of an annoying thing to say because the process is making sentences is slow. And there are only moments where you feel like you're in that lovely zone where it just pours out of you. And those moments are wonderful. But editing is also really pleasurable. And I think celebrate each small achievement along the way. Finish a chapter, celebrate. Finish a first draft, celebrate. Like, don't wait for that moment of arrival because in some ways that moment of arrival never comes or when it does come it's not quite like how you imagined so I guess that would be the way I approach it now as I try and just feel lucky that I get to turn up and make sentences for a living yeah yeah I've heard uh I'm I'm into painting myself and I've heard a lot of painters talk about how yeah (laughs) yeah I'm trying to make it obvious um I've heard a lot of painters talk about how the process of a painting it often it starts off great and you're in sort of a flow and then there's a midpoint where you look at it and you're like oh my god this has all gone to shit and I don't know what I'm going to do and it all seems like it's crumbling and then it all sort of comes together at the end is that a similar <laughs> similar thing to your thoughts on writing or is there maybe potentially multiple moments like that in the midst <laughs> I'd say one of those at least once a day <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay um yeah there's it, oh god I don't know um there's moments you feel like you have it in your grasp, like it feels tangible. And then other moments, it just feels like there's no way you're ever gonna finish finish the thing. There's a point where you know your book really well and that's really pleasurable. And I, I think of a movie where they have a screen, they have a screen in front of them and they're like moving things around on the screen like this and they can move it with their hands, some Tom Cruise movie. Minority, Minority Report, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I always feel like that in the moment where it's, I've never, never told anyone this. Um, I always feel like that when a moment where I'm really in my book and I know where every sentence is. I know where all the different paragraphs are and I'm restructuring it. I'm like, in my brain, moving all the bits around like this. And it feels like that, like it becomes three-dimensional, becomes real. And that feels amazing. But then a lot of the time it just, you finish a draft and you realize there's a million and one problems with that draft and the ending doesn't work. If the ending doesn't work, you've got to rewrite the whole thing. So yeah, you just go through that process of, of destruction, creation, destruction, creation. I remember my first draft of No Way Home, and not even a draft, like a first draft of a first chapter, first ever thing. I gave it to my sister to read, um, who's I think read all of my work the most, more than anyone else. Um, and she was like, okay, and she gave me a bunch of feedback and I was like, I'm gonna have to do it all over again. <laughs> and I think about how that person where I've written that, you know, I've edited that book, thousands of times probably now and that early thought of like what I'm gonna have to write this chapter again (laughs) and how naive that was it's like yes you're gonna have to write it a thousand times more yeah tear it down build build it up (laughs) that's the process yeah okay um any particular particular low points in the journey of getting to the book from from you know from that inception to uh, other than having to rewrite that first chapter Oh, uh, yeah, of course. There's so many um, low points and high points. I signed with an agent who I am still with now and who I I adore, and she's great. And she's in a big, shiny agency in New York. And when I signed with her, I moved over to New York and and, and started kind of my career as an author based in New York. My publisher was here as well. And that felt really exciting. It felt like this moment where I was all going to been working on it for a long time. It was all going to happen. And then we got maybe 25 rejections for the manuscript. And that just felt like, it felt like getting so close 
And then it, I just assumed that she would drop me as a client and it wasn't going to happen. And those moments were really painful. And actually it got to the point where it was coming to the, the one year one year contract, it was coming to the end of my contract. Uh, no one had bought it. And I was like, all right, I did it. I did my best shot. I gave it my best shot. It's not going to happen. I gave up the lease on my apartment and um, I was going to go to Nicaragua and learn to surf. I was like, I'm going to just figure right. out something else. This isn't, you know, I, I'm going to go away. I'm going to think about things. You know, maybe I'll just, I'll write another book or maybe I won't. I don't know. And it was a week before I was due to leave. And I get a phone call from my agent saying, uh, we just got offered a book deal. <laughs> I just burst into tears. And it was not even like, it was partly like angry tears. Like, what now? <laughs> So I can't go to Nicaragua? I was about to go surf, dude. <laughs> uh, so it's like, I guess I need to find a new apartment and write a book then. <laughs> so yeah, that's a low and a high for you. Nice, nice. Yeah, it sounds, it's strangely similar to a guy I was talking to a, a few episodes back, a guy called Sam Lewis, who's an artist, and he... Mm. He talked about he he was in the process of getting rid of his art studio and, and going into this four year sort of hardcore art university college sort of course thing. And then had his foot one one foot in that door and then said, actually, you know what? No, I'm going to give this one more shot. Like and he'd been making YouTube videos for a couple of years. And then like a few weeks after that, his first video that really sort of went viral, I guess, happened. So it's really strange how. Uh, the, the universe operates in weird 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 ways it gets you right to the right to the edge and then then gives it to you sort of I know isn't it strange I used to feel like when I was prior to that point I used to feel like I had to make sacrifices to the literary gods like if I keep saying <laughs> no to, to opportunities if I keep turning down other things like when I was working as a journalist in London I'd get I got offered a job that was a really good job and it, it was it would really secure my kind of place as a journalist in London and, and it was really tempting but I also been given a grant to finish a draft of the book from the Arts Council, and so. But this is the grant is a sign, and this is a. I'm, I sort of felt like I was being faced with a choice between careers, and I, ha I knew I wanted to do the book, so I turned down the job, which in retrospect was insanity because <laughs> of course I needed a job, um, <laughs> but I felt like I was making this sacrifice to the, to the literary gods, and eventually I would be rewarded for it, which is absurd, and no one should follow that path. Take the job, why some evenings? <laughs> but, I mean, it, it worked out fine. But yeah, I think I I think the literary gods will be angry to hear you say such sacrilegious things. So I'd be careful. <laughs> oh no! Just as I'm trying to finish another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quick, take it back. <laughs> take it back. Take oh it hell, back. the literary gods! <laughs> oh, that's funny. I guess to sort of segue in a different direction for a minute. How any thoughts on? Because I guess. If we're speaking to you know people who are are aspiring writers then absolutely journalism is another area they might aspire to work and obviously you said it's it's a a harder industry to get a foot into i guess nowadays but particularly yeah. i'm interested in how you went about freelancing and how that sort of process works yeah i probably not the way that i'd recommend going about it um i was working in London I went off and did the trip in LA to interview my dad I came back and I was I'd got offered freelance shifts from my first job um, to come back on as a freelancer and then with in that publishing house at Bauer Media so they publish um, all sorts of publications in there a huge range and once you're kind of shifting on on desks as a writer you you just can move between the various magazines so that's what I was doing at first and that kind of meant 
meant I met a lot of editors. And the first few years of my freelancing was just shift work like that. So you just turn up and are like a, a writer for, for the day, like a human typewriter. They input stories and I put them out in the voice they want. Um, and I, I love doing that because you got to kind of play at having an office and, and a work like environment and community. But I could also do my own thing or travel when I needed to or wanted to. So that's sort of how I started freelancing and then built up contacts from there. And I was in entertainment at first. I was working at Grazia predominantly. And it, I, I loved the kind of, I loved the work that I was doing in terms of, it was fun, but it wasn't what I cared about. Um, I, it wasn't, I sort of ended up doing it accidentally. It wasn't, I wasn't like, I, I was into writing about celebrity culture. So I ended up deciding to make a sidestep and going to, I wanted to write about traveling. So I went on this big trip and started blogging for Matador and then pitching stories. So I shifted from entertainment to travel and sort of freelancing as a travel journalist from then on really. And that encompassed travel and booze and food and culture and, and sort of broader things. And I guess having good relationships with editors, maintaining good relationships with editors, being able to pitch a lot. There's a definitely a pitch to acceptance ratio, which I don't know if I've ever perfected. And I think having a steady side hustle has always like a steady content gig or marketing gig or something copywriting gig something that pays more than your straight up freelance fee will at first I think that made it possible because I always had one steady client at any time who was pretty much the bulk of my bills were paid through and it meant that mm -hmm. I could chase those nice bylines uh, with the meteor pieces that matter because you only get a handful of those um, and especially at first, you might only get one or two a year, and then you want to develop it. So that's the bulk of what you do. But while you're only getting one or two nice bylines in the Guardian or the Times or whatever, you need to then have someone paying your bills. So that is the, the steady client that you're looking for. And I guess mm -hmm. that's how, how I did it. If I were to go back again, I probably would stay in the staff position for longer and establish myself as a staff writer on a number of different publications because you just learn so much more on the job because you're producing so much work on a daily basis. You know, you're writing multiple stories a week, if not a day, depending if you're on a daily or weekly or monthly. And that is just a fantastic training ground to get fast, um, to learn what a publication wants, to develop really great relationships and people that you work with then leave and work other places. So you then have contacts at those places. And it's all about that editor, the senior name in the email box and opening up the email and being like, oh yeah, she writes really well. I, uh, I'm interested to see what idea she has. And I, yeah, so I guess I just always sort of stuck at, at it. I'm doing a lot less journalism now. And partly because the I mean, travel industry just took such a massive hit at the start of the pandemic. I was sort of like, I should either try just pitching more and seeing if I can get more stories or I can just take a step back and have a break and work on a screenplay because I sensed the amount of work that was going to be available was going to be pretty slim and that maybe mm -hmm. it was a nice time to focus on something else. So it's tough. Uh, yeah, it's tough right now. I know a lot of people are in travel writing or retraining, um, which is sad. Very. Is Sorry, they went in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is the pitch process how does that work is it you purely come up with the ideas and and pitch them to places or is there like a, a feed somewhere of we we want a story on this pitch us how you're going to do it sort of thing 
So editors will occasionally put out a call for stories and then you can respond to those calls, but so will hundreds of other journalists who have seen those calls for stories. So that will kind of depend on either whether you have some standing with that publication or uh, if your ideas are particularly good in response to the call for ideas. Press releases will come into every journalist's inbox every day, um, but the same press releases are sent to the editors. So they don't as a freelancer, the editors don't really want to see a pitch from a freelancer from a press release that they have also received. Because if they have the press release, they'll sign that story rather than assign it out, you know, to somebody else or somebody wanted. They don't want to see it pitched to them. They already know about it. They want to hear from mm -hmm. journalists about things they don't already know. So your best bet in terms of pitch is something that you have access to that the other journal that other journalists or the publication doesn't have access to. So um, in travel, be that you've visited a destination recently, that you know that destination really well, you have your interviews lined up with a number of different people, and this is a story that hasn't been widely covered. So some nice little niche angle of either a city that's well known or a destination that's well known, or somewhere that's further afield that people might not know about yet. So you're always looking for like, this is what I have to offer, and only I, I'm the person to write this because of X, Y, and Z. So in general pitching, it's like, why me is a really big part of your pitch and also why now? So those are the two things you've got to nail in your pitch is what is the story? Why me? Why now? And if you get those three things in any, whatever the topic that it is you're writing about, that will be a, a pitch that's more likely to be well received. Um, so you generate, so, so the best things are the ideas that you generate your, yourself. And that's what an editor is looking out for is, wow, I just got the story landed in my inbox. I've not heard anything like it. It seems totally new, um, and then they'll hopefully commission you. But how many nice. of those ideas do you have a day? <laughs> Several thousand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just don't like to share them. Um, <laughs> so that's the pitch process for for journalism to bring them back to the sort of writing. I know you touched on the. I guess there's a two part thing. It's like the first of all, the, it, is this how it always goes? Is it that you go pitch for an agent, get an agent, and then that agent does the rest? partially for you or with you or how does that process work I guess of, of getting a book published mm -hmm. um there's there's so many different ways in uh to it the kind of classic is so for non-fiction you would write a non-fiction book proposal and that will be three uh, sample chapters and a overview of the book and then a chapter outline of the entire book and that really has to, you pretty much are doing a lot of the work of what the book will be and ahead of time. And that's how you would sell a, a nonfiction book proposal, which will be a memoir or anything uh, research based. And um, you would prepare that and send that to an agent. If an agent likes you, then they would sign you. They probably work on you with your proposal for a while, making sure it's really good and, and are focused. And then they would send that out to publishers, either a specific publisher or a number of publishers uh, who would be a good fit for your book. Most publishers won't take unsolicited manuscripts. So normally you need an agent to do that work for you. So really having an agent makes, is, the agent is really the gatekeeper in that regard. Uh, you, there are some publishing houses that will accept unsolicited. I think Granta does. And, uh, and that's obviously an excellent publishing house. But on the whole, you need an agent. And the agent also is just going to make life easier for you because they're going to know the landscape so much better than you are and, and be able to deal with contracts and stuff like that and probably secure you a better deal. With fiction, you have to finish the book to get the agent or to get the publishing deal. If you're established, then, then it, it, that's probably not the, the case. But certainly for your first book, you need to write the whole thing and submit that to agents and 
the agent again will work with you on your manuscript before you submit to a publisher. There's lots of competitions for getting publish, um, publishing deals. I don't know anyone who's gone through that way or, or what that experience is like. And then the other thing that happens quite often if you're working as a writer already, and so you're publishing regularly, it might be that you write a personal essay in, in a magazine and that essay gets read by an agent and an agent calls you up and goes, I love your style, have you thought about writing a book? And then they might work with you more closely on developing a proposal for a book. And that's quite nice because you get some support. And I kind of went both ways. I, I, I was writing for advice at the time and I had a couple agents get in touch asking me about writing a book, which was a lovely kind of impetus to do it. And I didn't end up going with any of those agents, but it gave me the, the kind of belief that I could pursue this and that there'd be people who'd be interested the other side. And ultimately, I sort of found an agent through another means. But yeah, getting your writing out there, um, getting the best writing you can out there is just an example of what you're capable of doing. And also agents and publishers want people with platforms, especially now. So agents are going to be looking at social media. They're going to be looking at people with Instagram accounts that are doing really well and have an interesting angle and that might be, could be make good book material. And they're going to be reaching out to those people. But I can ask squeezed in before that which is good because my social media now is pretty poor <laughs> yeah i was thinking about getting my mum on on instagram to to boost her book chances but i'm not sure not sure that's her route either um <laughs> you touched on the agents how the agents sort of will work with you for a while on on the book were there mm. any big learnings that you had sort of when you had your book written and you had your then you got to start working with the agent, any things that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that, or that was a big learning that they gave to you before you sort of went out towards the publishers? Well, I guess that my book, for me, is it, I mean, it's a specific one that I'd written a memoir. I called it a novel and it was my agent who was like, there's no reason why you can't write a memoir. Was it, but I can't because it's a secret and I hadn't really dealt with all that that stuff that I had to I was still keeping the whole thing at arm's length so working with my agent made me realize that actually I'd written a memoir and I just was calling it a novel the whole thing was true I just didn't want to tell everyone it was true <laughs> uh, it, it felt too frightening so I guess that was the main thing that my agent did for me um she, I didn't know how the the proposal process worked so understanding how to write a really good non-fiction book proposal that that's definitely something my agent taught me and gave me lots of examples of um, amazing proposals that get publishers wanting to to, to buy the book. Um, What's, what are the key ingredients of a, of one of those? Oh, God. <laughs> I wish I knew. I'm writing one right now, <laughs> uh, a new book proposal for uh, a, a non-fiction book, is, uh, except a different one. So there's a novel, which is in process, but then there's another book I'm writing about um, memory and autobiographical writing. So that's one that I'm writing a proposal for right now. And I wish I knew what the key was to making it successful, but I have no idea. It has to be that you get to the end of the book proposal and you go, wait, I want to read the rest of that book. What happens? Or like, it has to just be enticing enough that people uh, feel like they need, they need more. And whatever magic that is, I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so is this is this where you're writing three chapters and then the chapter outline was there anything else that goes into it so an overview a chapter outline and three sample chapters nice, um, okay. and yeah that's your that's your standard non-fiction book proposal and that can look different it does have variations so for a memoir which is narrative that chapter outline might be something more 
might be little snippets of the chapters, whereas if it's a science book, it might be bullet points. So it can take a different form depending on, on the subject matter. But to see what they want to see is the shape of the book, that, that whatever the subject matter is, there's enough leverage in it. So quite often people will have written a, a column in a, in a newspaper or magazine that goes viral, and then they'll get signed to write, turn that column into a book. And what they want to see in that proposal is that this idea that was encapsulated in a column has enough legs to be an entire book. Um, and also you need to get in there uh, the same sort of, I guess, similar to the pitch for the, for as a freelance journalist, you want to get in there that you're, um, why you're the right person to write it, any personal connection you have to the subject matter, why now is the right time for it to be published. So again, those those two big questions are, are also going to be part of it. And in a, in a book proposal, you, at some place you have to address other books that are uh, in the same bracket, so comparable titles to the books that you're writing, um, why your book is going to offer something new that those comparable titles don't offer, and anything that demonstrates appetite for the subject matter. I think those are going to be the key components. So there's like a formula which you can follow, but ultimately it's that feeling of this is fascinating, I want to know more. Yeah, cool. And and the whole thing is to remember it's a demonstration of your writing style, so that's part of it, is the writing compelling, uh, and that will go a long way. And so then how does it look for, you said for a novel you have to write the whole novel. What is there, is there anything else that goes with that sort of in terms of trying to get that published as well when you're sharing that out or...? No, you just write the novel. You just send um, three chapters. What, so for me, I just send it to my agent, and uh, she sends it back and says and tells me to do another draft, which is where I'm currently at. But so once you have the agent, the agent will work with you on your material. So prior to having the agent, you're sending an prospective agent three chapters of your novel and a cover letter or the body of an email, uh, which will be. Uh, I think the key to the body of the email over the novel is probably do no harm and just hope that they read it. So who you are and some of the titles you've written for, if you've published before, and uh, maybe a sentence or two about what the book is about that should just make it enticing. And that, that's it. And then three chapters and hope that they read it. It'll be, I think, quite often they're just uh, interns who I, my, one of my early jobs was reading for Granta as an intern there and I think about that often when I submit stories about my 21 year old self uh, reading uh, submissions be like most likely the first person who reads it will be <laughs> will be an intern which is great because there's no reason why they don't have the same ability to spot talent it's just kind of interesting because you put so much effort into it and then you you've got to go through these various layers before you get to the person who makes a decision yeah that's so true and I guess that's that's probably another Another reason, I guess, why it's such a such a numbers game in terms of because I mean, like you know, everyone J.K. Rowling to to my mother to anyone to you has mm-hmm. to send presumably almost always to a shitload of people in order to get one positive response, and I think that's probably a big part of it is there is so many random gatekeepers and like piles of books that haven't been read and all of those things to get past. Totally, and and there just isn't that much money anymore, so the decisions that they're making with their budgets, it's like, can we bet on this horse? You know, it's, it's, they're, they're making a gamble on you. It's like, is this worth the risk? And I think the fact that there's less money in publishing means that while publishing 
um, publishers from taking fewer risks. I think that's starting to change now. As I don't know, I feel like the landscape right now for reading is, is really strong and book clubs, like virtual book clubs, have really reinvigorated the market. And I think it's a good time right now to, to be writing. Maybe I'm just being overly optimistic. Um, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there's lots of readers out there and, and readers wanting diverse stories. And, but the basic of it is that there isn't, that they, they need to make a decision about whether or not they can, they believe that you will, you will make enough money for them that they will pay back whatever advance they give you and then also earn money for the publishing house. Combo, the ultimate combo. <laughs> I guess any advice for people who are in the throes of, of either trying to find an agent or trying to find a publisher and, you know, getting those repeated rejections, perhaps, who are feeling despondent, any words of encouragement or uh, or advice for them? I guess I mean, with finding an agent, I had a lot of meetings before I found my agent and people who are interested but not sure. I think really questioning if you're if you're finding that people, that you're getting rejections, just making sure you're always thinking, Am I, are you 100% sure about what you're offering? And, and what, like for me, I think part of the reason why I get meetings quite often, but I wouldn't secure a deal early on was because I actually didn't really know what it was that I was writing. I hadn't really figured it out yet. I thought I had, but I, I hadn't. Um, the very fact that I, I didn't realize it, obviously it should be a memoir for years. <laughs> um, and of course it should be a memoir. Like it, it doesn't, if you're going to write that story and it's true, then that's what you're doing. And I just hadn't worked that out yet. So of course people were turning it down because if I don't know exactly what it is that I have to offer yet, then how can they sign me necessarily? And, and some people just will take a gamble anyway because they really love what you're doing. But yeah, having to think about whether or not what, what you're, that you're, you're 100% sure about what it is you're writing and whether if you are sure about what you're writing, whether you're conveying it effectively. Um, and then if you're sure about those things, then I guess it's just a numbers game. I tended to, I had no approach that would make any sense. I, I would, my first ever agent, who I was the person I desperately wanted when I was like 26 or 27, I was, it was really early on and she'd, she'd come to me and had supported me getting my funding. And when she read my first draft, she turned down the book and I was just devastated. So all along I've been like, this is it. I've got this person who's super interested and she's my dream agent. And then she said no. And I put the book away and I didn't look at it for a year. I was like, well, that's that. You know, I didn't realize that what you're meant to do in under normal circumstances is you do your research, come up with 10 agents that you really like how they work with their clients. Um, you like the books that they make, you feel a connection with them in some way, do lots of research. And then when you approach those agents, tell them why you think that they're the right agent for you. And then you'll get a bunch of feedback and you'll figure out whether or not your approach is right or wrong or whether everyone's saying the same thing. Like, oh, well, you know, we really feel like you've underdeveloped this idea and whatever you're making. So then you you can go about it in a, a more systematic way, whereas I kind of would find an opportunity serendipitously and pursue it and then not, and then wait until the next serendipitous opportunity. I never had a systematic approach. So I'm saying do exactly the opposite thing to what I did and it probably will be quicker <laughs> and easier. <laughs> nice, okay. Yeah, I feel like systems can often be helpful in situations like that, especially if you have to persevere through a volume of, uh, yeah. of applications. Send it to more than one person at a time. <laughs> 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 yeah it's like so much of it does sound like in particularly in the publishing world that it is that numbers game partially probably because of all those 21 year old interns who maybe are thinking about their lunch <laughs> instead of your well thought out three chapters of your book you know <laughs> well also i was reading the thing about um the modern love column in new york times which is um 
they, they're one of the sections of the New York Times which will read every single submission and they accept a lot of submissions from non-established writers it doesn't matter what your background is they do they accept submissions from college students from, from anybody it's it's just a, it's a great column for breaking into the New York Times and I was reading an interview with the editor and they said that it's not that they get a lot of bad writing they get a lot of good writing that is there's nothing ostensibly wrong with the with the piece of work it's just doesn't wow them it's like the difference between excellent writing and then something that's like wow this is just that another level and whatever that difference is kind of that magic that intangible magic and they said that's almost the hardest thing is turning down very good pieces of writing that has nothing necessarily wrong with them it's technically emotionally crafted everything the way it should be yet somehow just doesn't make them go wow and that they say is the hardest part of the job is differentiating trying to figure that out which I thought was really interesting so I guess writing a long-form piece of work that can deliver that sense of magnificence is incredibly difficult to achieve I mean same with a movie think how many movies we watch that are good but just somehow you don't leave going wow, that was amazing. (laughs) It's a very difficult thing to achieve. And also just to say, just because I know switching between publishing and journalism, the journalism pitching is very much you tend to just pitch to one person at a time rather than the systematic approach that I was talking about publishing is for publishing specifically, whereas journalism, you kind of have to just focus on one publication so yes i i think i mean i think the, the way to really get that way factor in the book is obviously to appease the literary gods at all times i think and the ones that don't have that spark are the ones who just are being frowned <laughs> on <laughs> uh, yes i should go should go prepare my sacrifices for my next, <laughs> my next <laughs> or you could write a book you could write a book on how to please the literary gods <laughs> oh if only i knew though <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be doing all right. Another thing I was interested in, because it just sounds like, you you know, the volume of things that you're writing and potentially also writing about different things at once. Any <laughs> tips on how to do that? Or maybe that is the tip for how to write volumes is to have different things you can switch in and out of or... I suppose right now, when I was working on No Way Home, I was working full-time freelance journalist and writing that book. And then the last couple of years, I know I want to write long form. I know I want to write another book I know I want to write a screenplay and so I've just kind of taken the time to invest in writing those pieces and having lots of eggs and lots of baskets and hoping that kind of one of them works out because there's nothing to say that the novel will get signed there's nothing to say that the book proposal I'm writing will sell there's nothing to say that the screenplay will ever get made like all of it is just hoping that one of these projects gets developed and all of them are kind of interesting along simultaneously in different levels of discussion so I guess for me whereas before I was all eggs in one basket I had to write this memoir I felt like the the sole goal and when I wrote it I was kind of released from that and actually it feels much nicer to not be banking on one on one thing working out it allows me to enjoy the process more and to take some of that burden of expectation off of each individual project because I'm working on a, a bunch of different things. And as as these projects develop, they go through different stages. Like I'm, I'm working on the adaptation of No Way Home for a feature film. And so I'm working with the producer and I'll write a draft and I'll send it off to her. Then I've got a couple of weeks to wait, you know, or a little bit of time to wait between different people reading it so then I get to switch to another project so I'm kind of like using the intervals of conversations and interviews and various things to to switch between projects it does yeah it can get a bit confusing especially with 
the novel's the one that requires. When I do that, I have to do nothing else and just work on the novel and lock myself away in a room. So I have to like find a month here or there for just that. Um, but the other ones I can switch between. But otherwise, I'm back to that place of one thing meaning everything, and that's scary. I think the burden of expectation is really heavy, and it takes us out of the present moment and uh, and stops us enjoying enjoying what we're doing because we're always waiting for the future to unfold and deliver that promise, which there's no guarantee of. And I think I learned this just recently doing this TV pilot, which I had no anticipation of it turning into anything. I just was having fun writing a TV pilot with a, a friend of mine. And then that's transpired to be something that's that looks like it might get made, uh, which is totally radical and unexpected. And the pleasure, the, the absolute pleasure of that, because I didn't expect it to happen. <laughs> And I just yeah. was having fun. And I, it made me realize how different that felt from the memoir where I expected it to be published and I expected all these things of me as a writer, all these things of me as, as an author. And if I didn't, like, for, I needed it for validation. And, and it meant that even when it did happen, it could never live up to that. It could never deliver what I'd, I expected it to. And that sort of changed how I've approached everything. And I think I can enjoy it now more. Not to say I still Amazing. don't get down when it doesn't work out. <laughs> That, uh, what you very eloquently said about uh, you know living in the moment versus waiting for some future payoff, I think is is wise advice not just for creativity but life in general. I think a lot of people spend their whole life waiting for something new to happen and never enjoying any of the present moment, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, and difficult not to. I think especially with our careers, it's like we've been raised to think that we are what we do, and I think that puts a really heavy weight on us being. One of these, you know, few people who get to really be at the very pinnacle of their of their work. It's something I think I wish I'd known about was when I was growing up and I wanted to be a writer. You know about the big stars. You know, you, you read about the people with the awards and, and the shiny literary careers. You don't read about the jobbing authors, the kind of the vast majority who are just out there writing books, making a living, having readers, doing some readings, having a, a very nice career as an author, but no shiny greatness. And that's the that's the reality is the, for the vast majority of people doing this job. And you don't, I don't know, I sort of wish I'd seen that. So I knew that that was actually what I was striving for. You know, I wasn't going to be mm -hmm. um, J.K. Rowling or Margaret Atwood or whoever. I was going to be a jobbing author and that's okay. And I think knowing that actually makes it all a bit easier. Until the, until the movie blows up, then you'll be living in your mansion <laughs> laughing. Can't believe I used to say that. <laughs> Um, right, I'll, I'll come back when that happens and then I'll be like okay <laughs> uh, yeah yeah you better come on the podcast again once that's once that's in place a classic <laughs> writer's question how do you how do you deal with writer's block or is that something you encounter I mean I guess when you're a journalist and you've got deadlines you just sort of have to <laughs> get over it <laughs> yeah so journalist well I mean it's just a being a journalist is it's a different brain it's like um yeah I just slip into journalism brain and tell a story not to say that I don't procrastinate because I totally procrastinate a whole bunch but um obviously I get moments where I can't write I don't know if I get writer's block necessarily the more I get indecisive so if I know what I'm going to write then I just can write it I'll just keep playing you know stay playful stay curious try something out try something else out but you have to kind of know where you're trying to get to so I'm a big planner now and I think that's actually really helped so I use if anyone goes on my Instagram you'll be able to see like I'm a post-it note crazy post-it note person so I put I write each scene, like what's happening in that scene on the post-it note, and then I plan out on my walls usually, or in a notepad, the entire book in post-it notes. So 
and there's sometimes diagrams, there's been spreadsheets, there's been all kinds of different methods. Right now I'm big on the post-it notes or um, record cards. So once you have a plan of where you're going, you just have to do the next thing. And even if you just sketch out the next scene, just get something down on the page and you can move on until something piques your interest, then you might write more fully. But the key is just to keep moving forward. Because <laughs> if you stop, then, then then you ask all the questions. But the only times I stop is when I don't know what to do, as in I don't know the answer to the plot dilemma or the character dilemma or whatever it is. It, I, it's indecision that, that holds me up more than anything else because there's infinite possibilities of how to approach a story and choosing which one of those infinite possibilities is the right one is, is difficult. So I guess writer's block, I, I just identify as indecision. And the only way I know how to work it out is just to keep writing and tell yourself it's allowed to be crap. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. I've never heard it described like that, but it makes so much sense that it's rather than not having anything to write, you have too many things to write because there's just mm. infinite sort of options. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. My um <laughs> my cat has absolutely no respect for uh for the, the now recording sign on my door and he's trying to break in. So apologies for any <laughs> meowing in the background. Um, I hadn't I hadn't heard the meowing, but um yeah. <laughs> teach the cat to read i'm trying to but he's not getting very good (laughs) but yeah that's super interesting i think there's a guy i don't know if you've heard of tim ferris who's like a he's got a podcast and stuff and he he's written a lot of books none none fiction all non-fiction but he maybe it's him or maybe it's someone else but he's his rule is two crappy pages you just have to sit down Mm. per day and you have to do two crappy pages because by the time you get two pages in you've got the cobwebs off and you're sort of in the flow often yeah i think that's really true I, when I'm working on um, a second draft or something, I often, I haven't done this with the, the novel, which is probably the next draft I'm gonna do, but I type it up again from scratch, which is really time consuming. But the reason I do it is because as long as you're typing, you're kind of doing the thing, if this makes sense now, but it, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, fake it till you make it or whatever. You're actually, you're writing sentences anyway. And just by distracting yourself, by having to type the thing up again, ideas come to you in that process so it's almost just like you could write anything you could just type anything and as long as you're sort of doing the thing eventually ideas come you have to like trick your mind into not overthinking it like i used to do like pages of free writing um when i woke up first thing in the morning because apparently it's when our brains are most like uh unpolluted by the radio and by ideas and fears and insecurities and all this sort of stuff so if you just free write first thing in the morning it kind of allows an access to a, a creativity that is not available at other times of the day and i don't know if maybe that's just because we're half asleep because most of the time it doesn't make any sense the stuff I write that time in the morning but I think it's kind of trying to tap into that same thing you're trying to find a flow state where ideas come but I, I'm a big editor I, I my first draft is so horrible I sort of see it as like an architectural blueprint so you just have the framework down the first draft and then each draft later you you flesh out with the colors and the textures and the shades and that all comes further down the line some writers write beautiful sentences and then will wait and then write another beautiful sentence and that's how it comes out. But for me, in the first draft, it's just so bad. It's <laughs> un- almost un- unreadable. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with, uh, is it Tim Ferriss? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm going to check out this Tim Ferriss. Do indeed. He's got some good tips. Um, next thing I was going to ask is, I guess, taking it back to the sort of newbie beginners who are sort of be- beginning their journey in the hopes of writing a a book of some sort if you were sort of starting again day zero how would you go about from from you know having nothing written to starting to write to getting an agent to publishing all those things how what would be the playbook you would attempt to follow to get to that point again 
Sorry, I'll say it again. I just realized that my brightness was right down and I was slowly going into the darkness over here. <laughs> I've only got a very small picture of myself. So it's very dark up there. I was like, oh, it's, it's very dark. <laughs> Much brighter now. <laughs> I was just saying, if you were sort of to begin again at day zero, within mind, you know, the listeners being people who potentially might be at that exact point, you know, what would be the playbook you'd follow to, based on the things that you've learned and the maybe mistakes you made, things like that, that you would <laughs> attempt to follow at least? <laughs> um, God. Oh, I would do so many things differently. Um, but maybe that's a lesson in that is that there isn't a right way and we all come at it from a different angle and that actually believing that there is a right and wrong way potentially is what might hold us back. Um, that may be just what I tell myself because I went around it a really long way. Um, I think if I were to do it again, what I would be looking for is more mentorship. I didn't know any book writers and I knew some freelance journalists but I didn't really have an understanding of the type of journalist I wanted to be. And I hadn't really found somebody who kind of fit that, who I was like, oh, you, I want to be you, or I want to, I, I should rephrase it, I want to do what you do. You know, I hadn't, I didn't really have that early on. And I think that would have been really, really helpful. So like I was saying about if someone had told me that you could write a nonfiction book proposal and you could sell a book on the basis of that, then that would have actually saved me a lot of time. Things like that. Or just having somebody to sit down and t talk to about the process. And I think from a lot of people, they get mentorship from study. So doing a creative writing master's or MFA, if you're in the States, allows you to meet those mentors and also to meet a like-minded community of people also asking the same questions and figuring it out together. So I think if I were to go back, I would study creative writing rather than journalism because that was always where my passion was. But I had an idea that if I did a journalism master's, I'd be more likely to get a job. And I, I needed that. Whereas I was worried if I did creative writing, even if it was where my heart was, that I'd come out and I wouldn't be able to find work. So yeah, I think I, was, I would stick to my guns, follow my heart, do the creative writing master's, find a mentor, and be more willing to ask for help. I think if I had asked people who are doing something that you find interesting, ask them for coffee. Be like, hey, I'm starting out. I love what you do. Do you have 20 minutes to sit down and, and chat to me about it? Um, don't be afraid of that. I think I didn't have the confidence to, to do that. or I think I was wasting so much time. But like now when I get emails from young writers or young journalists saying, um, I'm trying to be a break into travel writing. I'm so happy to sit down with them and chat to them. And it's lovely to feel like there might be something that you can say that's helpful. Um, and I, I know now that if I had asked people, some people might not have time or not want to, and that's fine. But most often people are pretty flattered to be thought that they have something to pass on. So asking for help, finding mentors, I think a big shift for me was when I moved to New York and I fell into this amazing writing space called the Oracle Club, which is sadly shut down. But um, it was a membership space of full with book writers run by a novelist and a painter. And it was I had a, a library with an amazing collection of like first edition books and filled with uh, the painter's paintings and a salon and a bar. And we'd have poetry nights and there was a piano and a record player. And it was, it was basically my entire bohemian dream of what my life would be like <laughs> in New York, all kind of rolled into one beautiful space. And there were other book writers there. So I could ask them, I was like, oh, so what happens now? And, and, and that everything accelerated after that point because suddenly I had community and I mean that didn't happen until I was 29 and that yeah that really changed everything so I, I guess yeah going pursue if you know what you want to do find a way to find the people who are doing it they're the ones who will help you figure it out fastest yeah that definitely makes significant sense all right so coming towards the end now but I have to ask you touched on 
you know the the first the first iteration of the book that you wrote was sort of your your dad's version of the story and you didn't want to you know glorify the the that side <laughs> of things too yeah. far but give us one maybe something that didn't make the final cut of the book one proper rock and roll story from from his <laughs> <recounts. laughs> uh, proper rock and roll story. i think one of my favorite things uh one of my favorite stories about him which actually may be in the book i'm not sure was one of his first jobs in the pot trade before he was a smuggler. So, I mean, this is before he got massively carried away. He was importing 30 tons of Thai marijuana straight into the California coastline. <laughs> so, like, really carried away. Um, but right <laughs> at the very beginning, he, he was working um, on Wall Street by day and then selling pot by night to his friends. But his first, like gig was working for Brian Epstein and uh, was rolling up joints for the Beatles. So him and his friends <laughs> were given a bag of weed and had to like roll up joints and pack them in cigarette packets when, when the Beatles were on tour in the States. So then the, Brian Epstein would give the, the, the cigarette packets full of joints to the Beatles to smoke. That was his first job, like first job in, in weed while working full time, which is sort of nuts. I, I love that. I think that's hilarious. That's proper rock and roll. <laughs> um, that's far more rock and roll than I was expecting, even. The Beatles, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> yeah, what a what a mad world where selling plants is illegal. So stupid. I know, and like, you know, there are many people who are in prison for, um, for doing, for really far less than, you know, Dad did break the law and the time he got, well, I think it's absurd because pot should be legal. It, he did, he, you know, that's legit, I suppose, but... At this point, it's like he would just be an entrepreneur. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's sort of wild. He's got a medical marijuana license now, which I feel is like right and proper. God, <laughs> wish I could get one of them. Um, <laughs> make up some some ailment or something and move country. Uh, so probably yeah. not just yet, but someday. Someday it'll all be legal. Fucking yeah. much better drug than alcohol. So why is it illegal? Bullshit. Anyway, don't get me started at all. This will be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, second to last question, which I'm asking everyone who's on, is anyone you think, be they big or small, that you think I should try reach out to to get on the podcast? Anyone you think that you sort of like as a creative in any industry or anyone you think would potentially oh make God, a good guest? Let me think, who would, who would I want you to speak to? Well, the person whose career I'd love to know more about right now is another writer whose book I've just been obsessing by, which is a journalist called Will Storr. And he wrote a book called The Science of Storytelling, um, which is so smart. And uh, I'm kind of curious because I don't think he had a traditional, I don't think he went to university. And I'm kind of, I love stories of people who have succeeded to the top of their game and haven't, you know, don't have the Oxbridge degree and, or the Yale or Harvard and have figured their way out there. Those are the ones I sort of feel like are nice to hear because so many of us, the majority of us, don't get that story. So I, I'd be really curious to know more about him. And yeah, he's an award-winning journalist, English. And this book is, it. well, the reason I'm so into it right now is because it's, it's similar to the, a book that I'm trying to write, but he's actually written it and written it amazingly well, which is taking neuroscience and using neuroscience to understand how and why we tell the stories that we tell about our lives um, and in our fictions and in our memoirs. And and, but he's not a scientist. So again, it's like people who bring lots of different things into play. Oh, and the other person who I just think is amazing uh, is a neuroscientist called Julia Shaw. And um, she has an amazing like Instagram account in terms of like, she's sort of breaking a mold of a type of person. She's very into scientists who don't seem to be scientists and making science accessible. And also her books are fascinating. There's one about evil and how this entire world word is a construct and speaks to the different ways that we stigmatize uh, types of thinking. And then the other one um, was about memory illusions. 
and how that we can't anything that we experience we can't be sure of is whether or not it's really happening so she's just super fascinating she's got ted talks and what have you so nice. i'd like to hear her story too Sweet. <laughs> those okay. are just two people i'm reading right now and who i'm sort of obsessing over perfect and then last question is where can where can people find you on the the big old internet and connect with you and stay in touch and oh, follow you i'm i'm out there i'm at tyler rights as in writing rights um and yeah anyone's welcome to get in touch and if they read the book to ask me things i will reply i'm a bit crap on social media but i am there <laughs> that's what counts well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I definitely think there's uh, some some serious value in this for my mum at least, and I think probably for some <laughs> other people too. Um, I hope so. <laughs> so thank you so much for the time, and uh, I'll I'll talk to you again when we're on like episode 150 and the movie's just blown up and and we're laughing about the memory of this this episode. I'm ready for that. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll I'll make a sacrifice to the literary gods in your honor later. Today. On my behalf. All right, I expect yeah. it. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been an Thank absolute you, pleasure. Thank you, right, Peace and love. Bye bye. Bye bye. This has been the Creative Marketing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in again next week for another episode of the Creative Marketing Podcast with me, your host, Angus Boyle. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, say something nice. Artbangs.com. Get your paintings while you still can before the fucking value just skyrockets even faster than Bitcoin. Other than that, have a great day. Have a great week. You are, if you've made it this far in the recording, even if you fast forward it, you're a fucking legend and I love you. Uh, And I just hope you have a brilliant, fantastic day. Cheers.